0: Good morning. I'd you guys to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you guys would, please stand and honor the reading of the Word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them to a high mountain beside themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead meant. And they, said, and they asked him, why did the scribe say, first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and he did, and they did to him whatever they please, as is written of him. Congregation, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Every year, whenever I go on vacation with my family, I try to take a collection of books with me, whether that's in a tablet form or actual physical books with me. Uh, I enjoy physical books because I can write in them everywhere. Well, uh, in that pile of books, I always try to bring a biography with me. I try to read about someone, whether that's from church history or whether that's someone who's a significant cultural figure, whoever it may be. And this year, I decided I was going to read about Shoeless Joe Jackson. I always loved baseball, I love history, so I wanted to read about his story. And the author begins the book with this interesting note about Shoeless Joe. He says, A single moment often defines a man's legacy. A single moment can make a hero. It is these moments that make men legendary. Then after he, he makes this comment that single moments make people legendary, he tells the story that took place on July 4th, 1916. It was a game between the St. Louis Browns and the White Sox. It was Independence Day. And during that time, everyone would go to the ballpark, America's pastime, they're gathering together. And at this particular game, there were 25,000 people present. It's a lot of people for a baseball game. What happened was, it was, the top, or it was the bottom of the ninth, two outs, three strikes. They were down by one. He had one man on the base. Shoeless Joe was pitching or was up to bat against a guy named Bob Groom. Bob Bob Groom was a tall right-handed pitcher. He was known for what's known as a spitball, which is now a legal pitch in baseball. Bob Groom threw the pitch. Crowd actually goes quiet as it normally would. Something that significant, one of the greatest hitters of all time up at bat. He hits it, and it flies to the left field wall. All of a sudden, Shoeless Joe Jackson's running around the bases. He's coming up to third. His third base coach screams at him because he sees the ball coming into the infield, and he screams at him to stop. Don't keep running. All of a sudden, Shoeless Joe ignores him, comes around the third base line, and he sees a six-foot-tall 195 pound catcher. Shulis Joe was a small guy. And as fast as he could, he ran right into that catcher. Umpire calls him out. Ball comes loose, and the crowd goes wild. Well, the crowd went wild for a while until the moment when they realized Shulis Joe Jackson got knocked out. (laughs) So then, after he awakens, they carry him off the field. And every single newspaper wrote about this great event. One newspaper writer of that particular day said that it was the loudest cheer they ever heard come out of that stadium. Sadly, though, Shoeless Joe's not remembered for this. He's not even remembered for the fact that he had a five fifty one batting average, the highest batting average of all time in a season. No one's even close. Shoeless Joe is remembered because of the 1919 World Series, where he was accused of, he claimed that he was innocent, him and his team threw the World Series for money. Because of that, every single one of the players were kicked out of the league, never could play baseball again. This single moment is the moment that defined who Shoeless Joe Jackson is. This is why we know him still today. Not because of all these incredible acts he did, but this one single moment. I bring this up, and as I, dive, I dove into this book, I was encouraged and reminded that the Christian life is not like this. We're not defined by single moments in our lives, we're not defined by a set thing that we have done. We're not defined in the Christian life as not just a revival we went to when we were at this set age or a retreat that we went on at a certain time or some type of revival or a conference where we went and we felt this incredible encounter with God. And that moment was the peak of our spirituality. We're not known by that. But we're known by what took place right before this in Mark 8. Daily sacrifices that we make where he tells us to take up our cross and follow him daily. As we dive into our passage today, and as we come gather together on Father's Day this particular year, I want to encourage you guys, and especially encourage the men out there and the families out there, of this. The Christian life is about daily laying down our lives for the sake of the cross. It's defined by faithfulness over time. Those are the things that are remembered. Fathers, we may have made mistakes in the past. Mothers, children, you may have made mistakes in the past, but you are not defined by those. You're defined whether you're in Christ or not. Great fathers are not those who have the hero status like Shoeless Joe Jackson. Great fathers are not those who are celebrities who may have a large following on some social media platform. Great fathers are those who are faithful. And I want to encourage you, and I think what our passage is going to show us today is it's calling us to a life of faithfulness, not to single moments, but devoting our life each and every day to Christ. This means great leaders and great heroes and great fathers are those who regularly, each and every day, sacrificially lay down their lives for their family. Those are the heroes. Great heroes are those who sacrificially serve their families as Christ serves the church. That is the definition of a hero sad reality is, though, many of us want to change the world, but not many of us want to change a diaper. But sometimes, <laughs> key word, sometimes, <laughs> faithfulness looks like sacrificing for our families in that way, laying down our lives and our agendas for the sake of the gospel. Today, as we dive into our passage, I think we're going to see three points, continue with our three-point theme here first thing I think we'll see is our passage calls us to live for Christ. Second point is our passage calls us to listen to Christ. And finally, our passage calls us to look to Christ. Now, as I preach here, don't expect these first letters. I've never got into that. Never was in seminary that was taught that. These letters that have to start, I can't do that. And the acronyms where you spell stuff out, that's not me. So this is the last time you'll get this. Write it down. Live for Christ, listen to Christ, look to Christ. So a little bit of background about our passage as we're diving into Mark 9. Uh, each of the gospel writers tell us about this story. Mark or John alludes to it right at the beginning of this gospel, but each of them talk about this passage, and it's come to be known as the transfiguration of Christ. All of them tell this story. Mark and Mark begins this passage about the transfiguration with a little preface Right before this took place, there's this interesting comment, this calling for us to lay down our lives. So let's go back a little bit before our passage just to see this context. And I'm going to read it for us. Mark 8, 31. And began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning the side and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. Now, for some reason, when Jesus says this, it's righteous. But when I say it, it's frowned upon. Never figured that out. So get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things that are in God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him... Will the Son of Man be ashamed? And when it comes in, the glory of the Father with the holy angels. So we have this context where Jesus is telling them that if you're going to follow after Jesus, this lifestyle is going to look like laying your life down for the sake of the cross. You must lay down your life, take up the cross, and follow after Jesus. It's going to cost everything. To follow Jesus. Naturally, if you're one of the disciples and you hear this conversation, you're starting to think, is it really worth it? Is it worth following this man if it's going to cost me everything in order to follow him? Don't we have that same question? Is it worth it? If it's really going to cost me friendships and my time and my money and my energy, and it's going to cost me everything if I'm going to have to devote all of life. As E.J. Bonhoeffer once wisely stated, the cost of discipleship is to come and die. If it's really going to cost me that, is it worth it? It's naturally going through their head as they just heard this comment from Jesus. To make this a little more practical for us as parents, when we're called to sacrificially lay down our lives for our families, and we think, is it worth it to follow Jesus and to faithfully serve and sacrificially lay down my life for my family? Is it worth it? Is Jesus enough? That's the question we're encountering here. It's incredibly practical, especially when your kids are frustrating and difficult and you ask yourself, is it worth it? I'm glad you asked because Jesus is going to address that right here at the beginning. So our first point, didn't even define that right at the beginning, live for Christ. Here's where we're going to see to live for Christ. We must lay down our lives for his sake and now we're going to see that motivation. Motivation. Why? Why is it worth it? Look with me in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now there's been a lot of ink spilt on this particular verse, debating what is he referring to here? One of the things I think it's important as we try to understand the context of this, each of the gospels, when it talks about the transfiguration, give this preface about the kingdom. So clearly uh, our understanding of the kingdom and not returning until they experience this kingdom has to be rooted in this. I think what we're going to see in this verse is that the transfiguration... Jesus being transformed before their eyes is clearly to be understood and seen in light of what it means for the kingdom coming in power. The kingdom is being inaugurated by the risen Savior. It's going to show us this transfiguration, that it's going to show us that it's all worth it. Here's how this relates to you and I. Pain, cancer, Loss, disease, disease, and decay—all will pale in comparison when we see the risen Christ. So, as you're thinking, "Is it worth it?" As the disciples are thinking, "Is it worth it?" Once they see the power of the resurrection and how it transforms everything in this world, they will say, "Yes." All this pain that I've gone through in life—it's slight, momentary affliction compared to the great glory. There's waiting me in Christ Jesus. We see a resounding yes coming out of this. Look with me now in verse two. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them to, or led them up a high mountain by themselves. This is a in this parallel passage in Luke nine. Jesus is going to tell us that they went for the purpose of prayer. So as I go through this, if I allude to one of the other books, know that they all three are giving us different details about this great story. So they go up to this high mountain for the purpose of prayer. And John Mark adds the fact that it took place after six days. Well, this is interesting. And the reason I bring this up is because in Exodus 24, in verse 16 and 17, all the way back at Mount Sinai, Pastor Perry has been preaching in Deuteronomy. They're at the banks of Canaan, getting ready to go into the promised land. And a lot of the stuff that's in Deuteronomy, it's reciting or reflecting back what took place at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, if you remember what happened in the Old Testament narrative, God delivers them out of slavery at the very beginning of Exodus, and they slowly make their way to Mount Sinai, which is going to take place at Exodus 19 and 20. And there Moses will go up on a mountain. And there, Moses will receive the law from the Lord, and a great cloud covered this mountain. And God would speak to them. This cloud is the cloud that led them to that mountain, and it would lead them to the promised land. a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Mark, as he's talking about this, I think has this in mind. And we're going to see this is slowly going to be weeded out as he goes through this. These two stories are paralleled, and the reason for it is to show that Jesus is the greater Moses. Back in Exodus 24, and six, uh, 16 and 17, it tells us that Nadab, Abihu, and the seventy elders go up to the mountain for six days. And on the seventh day, God spoke out of the glory cloud. Look with me, turn with me to Exodus 24. I want to show you the kind of the context, the build-up to what's going on here. So James, Peter, and John go up, similar to Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders with Moses. And what they saw was the glory of the Lord. See this cloud? They hear God speaking to Moses. And listen what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose up with his assistant Joshua and Moses and went up to the mountain of God. So they go up to this mountain just like Jesus goes up to this mountain with his disciples. His glory cloud is going to be there. What's even more interesting is I was discussing with Pastor Perry about this. In Exodus thirty-three eighteen, 18, Moses is going to say, God, show me your glory. Show me this glory. Early church father Irenaeus, about 100 years after Christ, would say that Exodus thirteen eighteen will ultimately be fulfilled in a transfiguration where Moses sees the face of Christ. That'll preach. Mark is describing Jesus as the greater Moses. He's going up to this mountain. Just like Moses goes up to this mountain. If we remember back to Deuteronomy 18, when Pastor Perry was preaching through that, talked about this, Moses says, one day a greater prophet would come, one who is like Moses. A greater Moses would come. And they've been longing for that. When will this greater Moses come? When will he arrive? That's why when Jesus does miracles all the time, is this the promised one? Is he the prophet who is to come? They want to know, is this the one that Moses spoke about? Is Jesus the one? We're going to find out our answer here. Look with me at the end of verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant and intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew 17, 2 tells us that his face shined like the sun. Luke describes his face as dazzling white. This word transfigured is where we get the word metamorphosis in Greek. It's transformed before them. I'm reminded every single year. Uh, Chris Shanks, who recently joined uh, the church, he and I and our families and a group of us will always get together for fireworks on the Fourth of July. Shoot fireworks at each other—it's wild. Um, reminds me of the great C.S. Lewis story. Is it safe? No, but it's good. You know. Um, he's talking about Aslan there, but you know, apply it how you want. Um, But every single year we start shooting off fireworks and you start to see these beautiful lights and colors in the sky and they're reflecting off your children's faces and all these colors that light up the sky and the children are celebrating and yelling. And what we have is a small, small glimpse in the amazement of a young child looking at the bright colors in the sky of what the disciples saw here. We see the reflection and the glow and the beauty and the excitement and the joy that pales in comparison to anything that we can see here. It's a small, small foretaste of a greater reality of what Moses, or I'm sorry, of what John saw and Peter saw there on that mountain. We see the glorified Christ. Christ. Look with me back to Exodus 24. Let's go back there one more time. Like I said, we're going to clearly see these two passages should be read together. And then I'm going to tie all this together we can see why does this matter for us today, especially in light of Father's Day today. Look with me down at Exodus 24, 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. There's that cloud covering language. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses in the midst of the cloud, just like he's going to call out about Jesus here in this passage as well. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights. Here's what's amazing about this story. Moses, as he leaves from this place, his face is going to shine brightly. Why? Because he saw a reflection of the glory of the Lord. But here in our passage in the Transfiguration, it's not a reflection that he is going to see. He is seeing the glory coming from Christ. This is a reflection of the glory of God. This is the glory of Christ coming out of him that the disciples now see. That bright, beautiful picture is coming from Christ. How does this answer then our question? Is it worth it? Jesus is showing him that his glory is greater than any cross or any punishment that you may experience in life. And therefore, the answer to the question, whenever you're struggling to lead your family, to sacrifice for your family, the answer is yes. Why? Because Christ's glory is far greater than any pain you may experience. This means that we can lay down our lives and our personal agendas for the sake of making disciples, for the sake of loving our families, loving our church. We can devote ourselves, rather than devoting our lives to making a career out of summer league baseball, we can devote our lives to pouring into those within our church. Rather than devoting your life to some getting into an Ivy League school or some type of college that you long for your kids to get into, you can devote to raising them up to look like Jesus. That's far greater. Why? Because Christ in his glory is greater than everything this world has to offer. That means the pain and the difficulties and the struggles as you're wondering, am I going to make it through another sleepless night with this baby crying? Lord, give me the strength to go another day. How am I going to make it with our, my marriage or whatever it may be? Give me another day. Is it worth it sacrificing all the time? And the answer is Christ's glory is far greater. He is sufficient to satisfy your soul. This is incredibly practical. Verse 4. And there appeared to him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. In order to understand this this verse here, if you get the the context, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Scripture. During Jesus' day, the Old Testament was divided into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Moses is the author of the law. Elijah is one of the chief prophets. He was also told that one day at the end of Malachi that he would return. If you remember, he never died. He was carried into a chariot into the heavens. And Malachi, the Old Testament, ended with this promise, one day Elijah was going to come again. And they start expecting that and longing for that. And the Old Testament then sometimes was reduced not to simply be called the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, but the Law and the Prophets. Why does this matter? Because the two central figures in the Old Testament now here are pointing to and leading us to Jesus. All of Scripture is declaring He is what it's about. The Old Testament, the law, and the prophets are proclaiming Christ. That's beautiful. He is the prophet who is to come. He is the greater one. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why does he think about setting up temps? Is this like, camp? let's go camping together. No. <laughs> Would be a good camping trip, I'm not going to lie. Um, but no, that's not his, his point or his purpose here. He's alluding back to what's known as the Feast of the Booths. There are three significant feasts. Three times Israelites were commanded to come to Jerusalem every single year. There are lots of feasts, but the three significant ones were Passover, the Feast of the Booths, and the Feast of the Harvest, or Feast of Pentecost. Those 50 days after Passover for Pentecost. And they were called to come to Jerusalem every single year, and they were to reenact these events. They were to act like they were doing it all over again. That's why they couldn't have unleavened bread, or they couldn't have leavened bread within their house during this week's celebration and also why at the Feast of the Booths they would set up tents. Each of these represented a significant part of the Exodus. Passover is right when it started. If you remember, the blood was placed on the door and God's wrath passed over it. And then all of a sudden they're delivered and they go through the wilderness for 40 years. During those 40 years, God provided for them and they lived in tents. And then they finally make it to the promised land, the feast of the harvest. God provided a harvest for them. So every single year, they're to reenact these events, remembering the great salvation that God had done, how he delivered them out of slavery, and they didn't deserve it. He sustained them through the wilderness, and then he brought them into the land. Why did they reenact it? Because they started longing for the day. When was God going to do this again? How long, O Lord? And as we come to the New Testament, they're thinking, God, when are you going to do another great exodus for us? We're now enslaved to Rome. We're in our land, but we're slaves in our land. God, when are you going to bring us out? Save us, make us the great people we once were. We are unfaithful to your law and you kicked us out of the land. Bring us back. Do another great exodus But what they didn't realize was the exodus was going to be far greater. They were going to be delivered not from slavery to Rome, but slavery to sin. And God was going to bring them into a far greater land, the new Jerusalem. Peter said to Jesus, these tents, he's wanting to set them up. Because they're thinking, is this the time? Is this when he's going to do it? You know, is it time for this great Exodus to take place? Let's set up tents, and we're hoping that it's going to take place. He's now going to do this now that we've seen Moses and Elijah. Is our great deliverance going to take place now? That's what Peter's thinking. Listen to what happens, verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good, or it is good that we're here? Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Then he'll go on to say this, verse 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son, listen to him. This brings us to our second point listen to the Lord. It's interesting that Peter comes up with this idea. If you think back in the chapter 8, all of a sudden Jesus says he's going to be crucified and then he's going to raise after three days. Peter rebukes him. And now, all of a sudden, once again, only a couple of verses later, Peter's the one who comes up with this 10 idea. Over and over again, he speaks before listening. I'm kind of guilty of that at times myself. But here, we see the purpose of Peter being here is not for his advice. He didn't need his words. He needed to listen to Christ. Out of the cloud overshadowed them, a voice came out and it says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It had been 600 years since God spoke from this glory cloud back in Exodus that we've been looking at this morning. 600 years since God spoke. And now he's speaking once again, and he says, Peter, listen to my son. Notice that he says, this is my beloved son. We've heard this phrase before. Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. It's a quotation also from Psalm 2-7 and then Isaiah 42-1. Looking forward to the coming of the Messiah but he gives him this encouragement. Listen to him. Listen. May we be a church that is known by those who listen to the words of Christ. That means we're a people of the book. That means we devote ourselves to knowing his word, to memorizing his word, to listening to his word, to preaching his word to one another to building up one another with his word. We are people of his words. We don't accept Christ and then move on from the word. No, we are people of the word. It creates life in us. It sustains us. God speaks to Lazarus, dead body. All of a sudden, his words create life in him. He speaks to Jairus's dead body, his daughter's dead body. Life then comes into her. His words create life. It's been doing that since creation. He speaks and the universe is formed. We have access to those same words today. If you're looking for life in your marriage, in your children, whatever it may be, go to his words. Lead your families with his words. That's important this Father's Day. Let's go to our final point. Look to Christ. And suddenly look around. They no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to read your Bibles through the lens of Mark 9.8. We have this amazing moment where the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament, are looking to Jesus, and all of a sudden they disappear, and all that's left is Christ. Sadly, oftentimes when we read our Old Testament, we turn it into a list of morals and we make it into moralism and say, do this, do this. The God of the Old Testament's the God of wrath. The God of the New Testament's the God of love. We need to unhitch ourselves or whatever it may be from the Old Testament. No. The Old Testament is proclaiming Jesus. All of Scripture is declaring Son all of a sudden, you'll find yourself like Mark 9 8 tells us here. We'll be reading our Old Testaments, and all of a sudden, everything disappears, and all we see is Christ. George Whitfield, a famous pastor during the Great Awakening, or one of the Great Awakenings, he's described it as this. He says, The Old Testament's like walking into a room with the lights out. You'll bump into stuff, you'll stumble over stuff, you'll knock things over. The New Testament is not something new. The New Testament, all it is, the lights have been turned on and now you see everything that was there all along and it's all proclaiming Christ. And now as I go through my Old Testament, I start seeing these stories that I once read before and now Christ is all I see in the passage. It drives me to worship. It helps me in the midst of those difficult trials and seasons in life. Look with me at verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of God had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matters to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they, they asked him, Why do the scribes say, first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, it's interesting that Matthew and Luke tells us this conversation about Elijah is actually going to be about John the Baptist. That's why John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He's the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. He's dressed just like Elijah. He's eating the same foods as Elijah. That's why he says Elijah has come. He's the one proclaiming and preparing the way for the day of the Lord when the Messiah would come. That's why his response is he is come, and they dealt with him with contempt. What happened to John the Baptist? Chopped his head off. Birthday present on a platter. It's a weird birthday present, by the way. We all agree. I never thought, hey, I want someone's head on a platter for my birthday. If I did, I probably shouldn't be a pastor. But no, it's all proclaiming Christ. tells us that this is leading the way for the Messiah. And they ask this question, why is it that says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He's quoting from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Why is it that that Jesus is going to suffer these many things? Our iniquities, our sins are going to be laid upon him, but through him we will have peace. John the Baptist was going to be rejected just as the Old Testament prophets were rejected, and Jesus now is going to be rejected as well. And he is going to suffer many things. But what the result of this is going to be is we're now going to have fellowship with the Father because of what he has done. Here's the good news, guys. They saw the kingdom coming in power. When? When Jesus defeated sin and death and raised in victory. And at the Great Commission, after he resurrects, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Who has all authority? A king. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and though I will be with you always. They see the king coming in power. They see the coming of the kingdom. And now we take part in this as well. That resurrection shows us the answer to your problem and to my problems and my difficulties and your difficulties is this. Is it worth it? Is it worth our pain? Look to the cross. Look to the resurrection. And see the glory of the risen King. And we'll see that the answer to this question is yes. How do we know this Christ? How do we get to experience this glory? How do we get to see and find something that has the answer to all of life's problems and all of life's difficulties, knowing that it makes all of our trials worth it, not pointless, not vanity? The answer is Jesus. How do we know Him? Scripture tells us we turn from our sins, we repent, and look to him in faith. And at that moment, our sinfulness is exchanged for his righteousness. Early church fathers called that the great exchange. If you do not know about that, we would love to talk to you about it further after our service. We'll have a pastor who can meet you at the crossroads, which will be right back there. And I want to leave you with this encouraging note: Live for Christ. Listen to Christ and look to Christ. Little homework assignment for you this week in applying these verses. Fathers, mother, children, look for opportunities to lay down your own agendas in order to love your family and love your neighbor. Take up your cross. And show them that Christ is greater than whatever pain or difficulty that you may go through. Another homework assignment, don't be a simple hearer of the word. Be a doer. When we hear these commands to lay down our lives, obey, respond in obedience. And then finally, when you're reading the Bible this week, don't simply ask, what is this commanding me to do? Don't go into the Bible saying, you know, I want application. What do I got to do in light of this? What would Jesus do? I want to do that. Those are good questions. But also ask yourself, what is this saying about Jesus? Because once we understand that, it will lead us to worship, which will then result in a life transformed by the gospel. Do that this week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage and how all Scripture proclaims your Son. Lord, I pray you help us to be students of the Word, that we may live in light of this reality, that we may marvel as we go through the Old Testament and see story after story after story and how it is here for us to treasure and worship your Son. May we not be simply hearers of the Word, may we listen, but may our listening then transform the way we live so that we lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. We love you in Christ's name we pray, amen.